This is Star Talk. Hello and welcome to Star Talk Radio All Stars Edition. I am Carolyn Porco. I'm a planetary scientist, and I am joined here by Maeve Higgins, a comedian from County Cork, Ireland. Yes. Uh, and now based in New York. And hello, Maeve. Hi. Uh, thank you for having me. Well, it's really nice to have mm. you, and I'm delighted actually that you're Irish because <laughs> I grew up in an Italian Irish Catholic neighborhood here in New York so uh, hanging out with Irish people I hope that the Irish kids never bullied you and your siblings we bullied each other I mean this is New York <laughs> you know so. you know my um, brother was so excited that I was going to be on this particular show with you and this particular guest because he's a hydrogeologist oh and he never thinks I'm cool but like today <laughs> he thought I was cool <laughs> okay, good, good. Today we have as our guest someone who is very widely respected for her scientific insight and her leadership. She is Marsha McNutt. She is, and get ready for it, a <laughs> geophysicist. She's a former professor at MIT, former director of the Monterey Bay Aquarium and Research Institute, former head of the United States Geological Survey, former editor-in-chief of the journal Science, and currently she is the president of the National Academy of Sciences. Uh, oh, and did I say she's famous for having gotten perfect scores on her SAT exam? Wow. <laughs> so if at this point you're suspecting that she's a member of some superhuman race of aliens, I'm with you. Women. Women. <laughs> of course, what would we expect? So I'm very proud to have Marsha on my show. Welcome, Marsha. We're finally doing this. <laughs> Hi, Marsha. <laughs> Thank you, Carolyn and Maeve. Uh, wonderful to be sharing this uh, stage with you today. Uh, looking forward to our conversation. Okay, good. Well, I have to say, in the interest of full disclosure, I need to say that Marsha and I are good buddies. Uh, and she took me horseback riding along the beach in Monterey. I mean, that was a singular, oh, wow. singular experience. I'd never done that before. Uh, and I want to say I was on the horse that looked like Brad Pitt. So just... <laughs> I, I noted like it was a, a blonde, sort of toned horse, mus muscly, long blonde hair. Yeah, really, it was fun. It was similar fun. acting skills. <laughs> okay, so anyway, we're going to get serious now. Okay, uh, good. And Marcia, you are leading the National Academy of Sciences, the most prestigious scientific organization in the U.S. I bet ninety-five percent of the people in the country have no clue what the National Academy of Sciences does. Uh, how it's different from, say, NASA or the National Institutes of Health or the National Science Foundation. So why don't you take us through all that? What, uh, you know, just give us the scoop. Thank you. Thank you for this opportunity. I really look forward to raising the visibility of the National Academy in the consciousness of the public and everyone who cares about how sound science can impact policy and decisions in the United States and actually globally. So unlike the other organizations that you mentioned, particularly the NASA, which does science itself and funds science, the National Institutes of Health, which actually conducts research and funds science, and the National Science Foundation, which gives out research grants to academic researchers. The National Academy of Sciences 
which was founded over 150 years ago, does not itself conduct research. Now, the origins of the National Academy of Sciences, which uh, the academies are advisors to government, was founded during the darkest days of the Civil War, and it was the brainchild of Abraham Lincoln. Now, many who remember Civil War history recall that there was a very famous battle between two ironclad ships, the Monitor and the Merrimack. And the Monitor sank the Merrimack. And after that battle, Abraham Lincoln realized that technical superiority would be the key to winning the battle space. Mm -hmm. And he wanted to have the scientists on his side. So as Congress was going into recess at midnight, he got a bill through Congress to establish the National Academy of Sciences that would be a self-perpetuating organization. In other words, the members of the National Academy would choose their own members for perpetuity. And those members could be called upon by any group in government, by the White House, by Congress, uh, by the judiciary, to give sound scientific advice to government whenever it was needed. And so for more than 150 years, this organization has existed as a non-governmental body to help government make good decisions. Do you have sort of one of every type of scientist on your, in your academy or how do you branch it up between the sciences? Okay, so that's a great question, Maeve. So we actually don't staff up with one of every type of scientist. Mm -hmm. What we do is we call upon all the great talent that is out there in the United States and actually in the entire world. So whenever someone asks us for advice, we look at where are the very best people in all of the colleges, universities, industry, government, and we ask them to come and help us do studies. Mm -hmm. And because we're the National Academy of Sciences, they volunteer their time to come and help us do studies. Our biggest challenge is to find people who can come and help us provide advice who don't have conflicts of interest. Mm -hmm. Because it is so important to us to keep our reputation for providing advice free of bias and conflict of interest, that we have to avoid people who might have, so to speak, a dog in the fight. Mm -hmm. So we have to avoid people who, for example, might be providing advice on drugs who sit on a board of a pharmaceutical company mm -hmm. that could benefit if that advice goes one way or another. Before we go to Cosmic Queries and we listen to the questions of StarTalk listeners, I'd like to just give us an example or two of the kinds of things you're currently working on. What do you have scientists around the country concentrating on right now? 
Well, we have um, a, a number of uh, studies that we're doing currently. One is on what does the next generation transportation highway system look like for the country? Um, you can't pick up a newspaper or turn on uh, a radio show now and not hear about the future of self-driving cars. Yeah. And infrastructure, well, right? Yes. The infrastructure. And, and, and what, what is the, the future highway system going to look like that is amenable to this future of self-driving vehicles? So this is one study that we're doing right now. Another big issue that we're tackling is this revolution in genome editing. What are the ethics? What sort of policies? When it comes to human genome editing, how can the scientific community further the promise of this without digging itself deeply into the potential peril of genome editing? Uh, we've already seen um, requests and even demands for genome editing to help confront the Zika problem. Mm -hmm. And what are the ethics of that? Could there be uh, unknown, unknown ecosystem uh, impacts by editing the genome of uh, the mosquito in order to uh, help save lives and protect unborn babies? from the Zika virus. Boy, that, that last one really gets me because um, it's scary. I'm a scientist. I believe in it. I think it's the most beautiful thing humanity's ever created. And um, it is what is going to, you know, help us solve all the problems before us. But boy, the more capable we come, it raises such severe moral issues. And this is one, I mean, it's not only editing the genome of the Zika virus, it's just being able to edit genomes uh, all across the globe. Are we going to be editing the genome of human beings, for example? That starts to sound um, like social engineering. It's a scary thing. Well, maybe we should go to Cosmic Queries and take some questions. Sure. From well, I think that's... Um I mean, when you talk about the Zika virus, it seems like a lot of things that the National Academy of Science deal with are kind of things that are in the news as well, right? So they are like hot topics. So a lot of our cosmic queries are, they hit that. Um, actually, actually, before we go, sure. Marsha, are you the one who decides, okay, top of my list is we better get people to look at the genome editing. Do you have within the National Academy of Sciences a board that advises you? How does that, that happen? <laughs> Absolutely. We have many boards um, at various levels. So we have an overall um, council, and then we have uh, boards at various levels that uh, get into finer detail into certain topics. Okay. So we have a board of earth and life sciences. We have a board of engineering and physical sciences. We have a board that is in uh, social and economic sciences. So yes, we have many boards that help take a look at these various studies, make sure that they are very appropriately uh, constituted in terms of their statement of tasks to make sure that the studies are doable, that when the study groups report out, 
the work will be useful for whatever group has requested them to make sure that um, they uh, don't have uh, tasks that uh, lead them off in directions that uh, basically will not be fruitful or that there's not sufficient information. We make sure that the study group does not have to generate new scientific work in order to answer their questions, that they can basically synthesize work from existing peer-reviewed science. Okay. All right. To the questions. Okay. To the questions. This one is from um, a scientist in Minnesota, Kelia Silvis, and her cosmic query is, the apparent correlation between fracking and earthquakes concerns many environmentalists, myself included. However, I recently heard a fracking proponent assert that increased earthquakes might actually be a good thing because numerous small tremors would prevent a single devastating quake. Is there any truth this claim? To you, Marsha. Um, so this is a um, urban legend mm-hmm. that has been voiced many times and shot down numerous times by very knowledgeable scientists. The problem with that statement is that earthquake energy release is actually on a logarithmic scale. So you would basically need hundreds, if not thousands of small earthquakes to prevent the large earthquake. And so you could never get enough, say magnitude two and three earthquakes to prevent the magnitude five earthquake or the magnitude six earthquake. And in fact, the ground would be shaking um, virtually daily or weekly with mm-hmm. these small earthquakes to the point that they would um, uh, disrupt daily life to an extent that no one would uh, tolerate it. Yeah. So, no, that is <laughs> not that that's not a good thing. Great. But what about the, the correlation? You and I have had this discussion. People think fracking causes earthquakes. um, Oh, okay, yes. So um, this is again, um, this is again a very, this is a subtle point. There have only been a very, very few earthquakes anywhere in the world that were actually directly caused by fracking itself. Most of these earthquakes are actually quite indirectly caused by energy production because it is actually the wastewater disposal from either oil production or oil oil and gas production um, from fracking. And that um, wastewater then has to be re-injected into the ground. And it's the re-injection into the ground of the wastewater that lubricates faults and releases um, confining pressure on the faults, and that produces the earthquakes. So it's actually a secondary effect of fracking. It's not actually the fracking itself. Okay, so let me parse that a bit. So um, the earthquakes are, as you said, a secondary effect of the fracking, but they're also a secondary effect of oil production too because the wastewater, as you said, uh, the idea to handle it is just to re-inject it back into the ground. Did I get that right? 
That's correct. And it's not all oil production. For example, um, the earthquakes in Oklahoma, um, the particular oil that's being produced there comes from a formation that has a lot of water. So they have a lot of water to get rid of after they separate the oil from the water. That's not true with all oil production everywhere in the U.S., but that happens to be very true in Oklahoma. Okay, so people being, um, so people then, I mean, to be fair, have a reason to be worried about fracking as far as earthquakes go, maybe no more so than oil production in general. But they do have, do they not, a genuine reason to be concerned about what uh, this process of taking wastewater and injecting it back into the ground does to the quality of their drinking water? So that's, that's a, a very separate question about um, water quality. Uh-huh. Um, most of the injection wells, um, well, not most, all of the injection wells are permitted to go far below the aquifers. Um, where we pull our drinking water. So, theoretically, there should be um, no contamination if those wells are properly sealed where they traverse the uh, aquifers where we pull our drinking water. But, as you know, accidents can happen. Wells may not be properly um, cased as they go through the formations where we pull our drinking water, and there can be spills of contaminated water at the surface that then seep down into the aquifers from which we pull our drinking water. And so there have been some cases where drinking water has been contaminated either by uh, leaking casings or by contamination from the surface. Is this what you guys talk about when you meet up and go horse riding? Uh, actually, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is. yeah, that's why I like Marcia so much. Yeah, yeah, and so... We don't talk about boys. No. <laughs> <laughs> Unless they're like digging not far enough in to put their right, water right, in unless, the wrong right, spot. Unless, unless they're messing up. Unless they're messing up. <laughs> yes. Okay, but, but, um, but I just need to say we only have two minutes and 45 seconds left, so I, I want to just close this off, though. In, in taking the side of the public, um, it's not to, it's, they're not being hyper-hysterical to be worried about having fracking in their backyard. Because what it comes down to, Marsha, is that it's, we have to rely on private enterprise to obey all the rules. And they don't always obey all the rules. Um, and uh, we're going to take another cosmic question. Okay. Uh, hopefully we'll answer that quickly. We'll go to break, and then um, when we come back, I'm going to ask Marsha about a big event she was involved in. But let's take another question before we go. Great. So um, this question comes from Facebook. Matthew Maxon asks, should scientists get out of the lab and run for office so we can change the funding and we can maybe move those climate change deniers out of office if they are there? What a great... Uh, this is a rebel. I like, I like rebels, Marsha. Go for it. I, I love the idea of scientists being in public office. Just yesterday, I was in a meeting with a number of German colleagues, and all of us from the U.S. side were so envious of the <laughs> fact that Angela Merkel is herself 
science-loving, science-literate, and married to a card-carrying scientist who is still practicing science. Oh, what and type of scientist? Is, I didn't, I didn't know yeah, this, I didn't actually. know that. Yeah. Yes, Do you know yes. what he practices? Her, her husband is, um, he's a physical scientist, I believe. But anyway, um, and then Does that every mean he time, just looks like a scientist? <laughs> no, no, he <laughs> studies physics. He is a scientist, and he interprets science for her. Great. And he, I believe he works at the Max Planck. Ah, um, wow. But anyway, yeah, he's, he's very involved in science. And every time we go over to China you realize that China is actually a technocracy. Um, that, that basically um, the, the people in government there are very technically and scientifically literate. Mm-hmm. I sat down and had a 70-minute interview with the premier of China, and he was absolutely up to speed on all of the scientific issues. He had an interpreter there, and he was correcting his interpreter when she did not get the science right. So, you know, you just drool. And and that's why China (laughs) and Germany are investing so much in science right now compared to the U.S. Yeah. Um, Well, uh, I love the idea of you sitting there with, um, with him and speaking about science for 70 minutes. That's something you don't hear a lot about the Americans and the Chinese having these. And also, I assume that you could also speak maybe Mandarin or Fujinese. Do you <laughs> because actually, of your high Marcia, do you speak Chinese? I, I wish I did, but, you know, I do not have the language gene, unfortunately. Okay, okay. well, anyway, uh, I'm getting... That's why you're working on gene modification. Uh, okay, guys, I, we have to take a short break, but don't go too far. We will be right back here on Star Talk All-Stars. Hello and welcome back to Star Talk All Stars. I'm Carolyn Porco, your host. I'm a planetary scientist, and we have uh, with me today Maeve Higgins, a professional comedian from <laughs> Ireland. She's Irish, and she's living now in New York. And um, our guest today is my good buddy and uh, president of the National Academy of Sciences, uh, Marsha McNutt. Welcome, Marsha. Thank you. Happy to be here. So, we were talking a lot of stuff about uh, what the National Academy of Sciences does, how important it is. Uh, it's like kind, kind of like the government's think tank. It calls on scientists all over the country, the experts, and has them convene and discuss really important issues. We were talking about fracking. We were talking about how advanced Germany and China are in having... Uh, scientists uh, either making decisions over there or being married to scientists, their leaders being married to scientists. It's uh, very impressive what other countries are doing. Um, And maybe someday if we work hard enough and we get scientists in office, uh, we can be there too. But I want to talk to Marsha right now about um, an event that happened uh, during her tenure as the head of the U.S. Geological Survey, soon after she took office uh, there as the director, I sent her an email, just a friendly email. Hey, Marsha, I haven't heard from you in a long time. How are things going? How do you like your new job? And she writes back saying, oh, my God, you know, I've got this, you know, wild oil leak in the Gulf, and I got to get that under control. And it wasn't until that moment that I realized that she... Uh, it was 
her responsibility as the head of USGS to deal with the British Petroleum Deepwater Horizons oil spill in the Gulf. This was the world's largest accidental oil spill, 210 million gallons over three months. The oil slick was the size of the state of Oklahoma. Uh, and Marsha, it happened just as you took office. So I want you to take us through that and all aspects of it, because it would be very illuminating for people just to learn what a person in your position has to do, what your job was, what your challenges were. And I'm most interested to find out what your insights are or from it were about um, the interaction between government and private enterprise. Okay, so um, sometimes I really try to block out those months <laughs> of my life. So thanks a lot, Carolyn, for bringing this up again. What, what's a friend for? Uh, was it within the first? Yeah, was it right. within your first like hundred days of working there? Or was it the first month um, or your first so, day? Um, the well blew in about the third week of April, and I was <clears> confirmed um, and took office November the year before. So, you know, I, I had been there, um, you know, probably uh, not quite six months when it happened. Yeah, but oh it's a goodness. big, big organization. But, and you could imagine. But, but, but let me put it this way, Maine. <laughs> yeah. Between, between me arriving and the well blowing, I had already had to deal with the magnitude 7 earthquake in Haiti with 230,000 <gasps> deaths. Um, the um, magnitude 8.8 earthquake in Chile, and um, the uh, volcano eruption in Iceland, which closed down air traffic over the Atlantic and um, grounded, uh, I don't know how many you know, tens of thousands of flights and inconvenienced like 8 million passengers. Yeah, And caused um, the, was the largest grounding of civilian aircraft since World War II. So this was the fourth major disaster in my first six months. Weren't you tempted to be like, okay, I'll take stuff that happens on land. (laughs) I need somebody else to take water and somebody else to take (laughs) air. It seems like a gigantic role. Well, I I have to say, I was not in this alone. I had Mm -hmm. Jane Lubchenco from NOAA, who was also involved in this. That was the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Right. I had Steve Chu from the Department of Energy, who was also involved in this. And I had um, many great people, um, uh, Tom Hunter from Sandia Labs, and um, uh, of course, um, Admiral Thad Allen, who was uh, commander of the Coast Guard. Mm -hmm. Uh, So this was... This was a massive team effort. Mm-hmm. When uh, Carolyn says it was my responsibility, um, she is, of course, exaggerating <laughs> because, because there were there were many many people involved. I had my little my little part of this that mm-hmm. that I was working on. So <clears throat> the way this all went down was um, the Department of the Interior which my organization, USGS, is part of, um, did have a major responsibility for this because Department of Interior, in addition to housing the U.S. Geological Survey, also housed at that time 
an organization called the Mineral Management Service, which has now changed names because it got such a bad reputation as a response as a uh, well, what, result. Of what's this. it called now? Uh, it's now called uh, BOEM, oh. uh, the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management. <laughs> totally but, different. Um, the Minerals Management Service was responsible for offshore leasing. Mm -hmm. And so they were the ones who gave the permit for this well that blew. Mm -hmm. And they were also responsible for offshore oil safety. And so those two responsibilities have now been separated into two separate uh, organizations. BOEM does the leasing and the Bureau of... um, uh, safety, uh, a bureau of. Um, Marcia, don't worry about it. We're, we're okay, they, people, anyway, people listening um, can Google. They, they yeah, can figure yeah, it Bessie out. <laughs> does does offshore um, safety. So nice. anyway, uh, that was a result of this um, this disaster. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, Department of Interior was responsible for um, helping to oversee uh, of the bringing. Um, some result of this in addition to the Coast Guard, of course. And so the Secretary of the Interior, Ken Salazar, knew that, as Carolyn previously mentioned, I had run an oceanographic institution, the Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute, that had a reputation for deep sea intervention technologies using remotely operated vehicles, uh, undersea observatories, uh, and a lot of advanced uh, AI underwater. And so he felt that I would be the right person mm-hmm. to go to Houston and work with uh, BP to try to help them as they explored methods to bring this well under control. Okay, but the thing the thing that you told me that I found most um, <clears throat> I mean, you know, <clears throat> made me just, I don't know, facepalm, was that you told me you were going back and forth between BP doing what you just described and trying to help them figure out what to do, I presume, mm-hmm. and testifying before Congress, kind of like being the go-between, telling Congress, like calming them down, saying we got this under control, and then going back to BP. You told me you were only, you know, work, sleeping, you were working 18 hours a day. That's what you were telling me. So... What, what was that, that like? That's true. I, I don't remember sleeping much for <laughs> about four months. Um, wow. We typically would start work at six in the morning because our first meeting at BP headquarters was at 6.30. And I rarely got back to my hotel room before maybe 11.30, midnight at night. Wow. Um, wow. So. <clears throat> It was very long days. I hope uh, I hope that they treated you well. I feel like there would be such an apologetic tone in I, that room. They'd be, do you need some coffee? <laughs> Not, I would. Can we? <laughs> I don't know because remember, in some sense, they were the other side. I mean, Marcia mm-hmm. Marcia was there as the watchdog, mm-hmm. and they're trying to cover their butts, so to speak. So that's well, where. They, go ahead. Yeah, I I would say that everyone had the same goal. Uh, you know, yeah. BP, the government, everyone wanted to bring an end to this disaster as quickly as possible. I know, but Marcia, I I read, this may not be true, that BP, and I don't have the numbers, I'm sorry, but 
BP was saying, oh, we're only leaking so many thousands of gallons of oil, and it turned out to be orders of magnitude more than that. Yes. And the government's numbers were different than BP's. I mean, this is the kind of thing, when you hear that, you hear about Volkswagen trying to, you know, make their results of emissions testing look better than they are. It really makes me very, very suspicious of corporations and, you know, and their... um, They have so much money to... Money, power, they can Mm -hmm. abuse it, and the government, somebody's got to watch them. And wasn't that your job, Marsha? So, Carolyn, I think you have to um, make a distinction between BP's scientists and engineers Mm -hmm. who seriously wanted to end this disaster as quickly as possible. Uh Uh-huh, okay. And the perhaps corporate attorneys whose responsibility was to minimize liability for corporate shareholders. Because I think that you can't blame the scientists and engineers at BP who were working the same hours that I was and trying to bring an end to the disaster for what might have been the decisions that the corporate attorneys were making. Okay, I... I Perfectly see that. I mean, you know, the scientists in a nation like ours shouldn't be blamed for what the government does uh, regarding, you know, scientific posture across the globe. Why don't we uh, take some questions? Great. What our our listeners are thinking. Great. Well, uh, this one comes from um, Timothy Lee at Facebook. And actually, this refers to the BP oil spill. So do you think that the oil and gas industry has ever used its influence to hold back developing innovations uh, that may threaten its bottom line? And what do you think the government's role should be in this? Okay, so the first part, I'm going to venture to say that Marsha probably can't even directly answer that. Um, But um, I mean, I I would say my motto is if it can happen, it will happen. Mm-hmm. So I'm I mean I just revert to a situation where um, it was at least if you know what you read is that there was cover up of some sort. But Marcia, the second part of the question, the second I part, think, yeah. So what what should the government's role be in this? Yeah. So that's a NAS, the National Academy of Sciences is right is right there at the fulcrum of this. So what 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 goes? Right. So, um, yeah, I agree with Carolyn. Um, you know, it's 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 certainly not within my purview to, um, you know, say anything more than I think the person who posed the question probably, you know, reads in the newspaper about potential um, situations like this. I, I don't have any insider information. Um, that I would know. Um, But I think that um, every time I have seen examples of disruptive technologies that have been able to make it to market, it has always been for the benefit of the consumer and the benefit of society. So I think it is very important that we create a economic and a um, business climate that is friendly to disruptive technologies. Mm-hmm. 
And so anytime I look at policies that unduly favor the status quo and um, discourage disruption, I get concerned that disruption then is going to come from external to the U.S. and at the disadvantage of American inventors and American research. I see that. I mean, I, I agree with you. We want to encourage innovation. But at the same time, I believe that regulation is a good thing because otherwise people will just follow their selfish interest. Um, so, I, you know, encourage, but I don't know, trust but verify maybe is the, the guideline. Were you going to say something? We, yeah, we have... Um We've got one minute left. Okay, we've got one minute left. So this is a question from our producer, Lindsay, who wants to know, what would you tell the government if um, there was contact from aliens? Oh, interesting <laughs> point. Interesting point. Um, oh, Marsha, do you guys... This is a big, a big thing now. You know, there's a big new effort to search for extraterrestrial intelligence funded by Yuri Milner. Uh, it's called Breakthrough Listen, $100 million. Um, have you ever been approached or has the National Academy of Sciences ever thought about, you know, what is going to be the protocol for that moment when we think we've intercepted a message from aliens? I feel like they'd be like, Marsha, you've got to tell us what to do. <laughs> I, I, I absolutely love that question. Well, we've so, got 13 seconds. Maybe actually, <laughs> let's maybe we should hold it for the next uh, segment. So um, we're going to take a short break. Hold your breaths. Uh, but don't maybe worry. There will be an alien invasion in the break. We'll be right back and we will be answering some more cosmic queries from all of you, our listeners. Stick around for more Star Talk All Stars. Hello and welcome back to Star Talk All Stars. I'm Carolyn Porco, your All Star host. With me is Maeve Higgins, my comedic co-host. Yes, learning a lot today. Okay, Thanks, I, I am. I am too. <laughs> I am too. And joining us via Skype is geophysicist, former MIT professor, and current president of the National Academy of Sciences, Dr. Marsha McNutt, my good buddy. So we're going to jump right back in uh, with the query we were just asked, and that was. What will the National Academy of Sciences do if, uh, and Marsha in particular, if during your tenure um, we receive a message from an alien civilization? Okay, well, as <clears throat> president of the National Academy of Sciences, I would absolutely welcome a request <laughs> to the Academy to consider what should be our response. First of all, I would say that there are several things that the Academy should um, address if there is a signal that is purported to be from an alien civilization. The first thing we should do is consider scientifically what is the evidence we can mount that this is truly a signal from an intelligent uh, being or beings, and um, what uh, what what evidence do we have that we can mount that would um, support that? The second question we should address is 
where exactly is the signal coming from? Can we pinpoint the source? The third question that we should address is, can we decode the message? And what, what can we learn about the message in terms of the sophistication of its, um, uh, its source? Is it a simple message? Is it a complex message? And from that, can we learn anything about the intelligence of um, who's ever sending it? And then fourth, do we respond? And if so, how? It sounds like you're talking about Snapchat. <laughs> no, it sounds like she's talking about the movie Contact, which I just nice. love. So, Marsha, I think what you need to do, you obviously need to do this, girlfriend, is you need to do all this beforehand. You need to do it under your tenure. <laughs> and then you could be the first president of the National Academy of Sciences that's got it written down in a white paper. You know, these are our recommendations and considerations for that moment. Uh, because, you know... I'm kind of saying this tongue-in-cheek, but uh, people are really seriously debating what to do. In fact, there's a uh -huh. huge debate about whether or not we should be sending messages. There's a camp yeah. that thinks we are endangering the, the Earth. We are endangering the planet and people in the future on it by sending messages that announce where we are, what we're all about, because if there were an alien civilization out there far more advanced than we are, and they'd actually uh, been able to travel long distances. They could be headed our way uh, once they find out where we are and they could, you know. Yeah, it's like on Instagram. I always wait a few minutes before I stay where I am. Like if I'm in a Dunkin' Donuts, I don't just like post that photo. I leave in case some oh, creep, interesting. In case some creep I, is like, <laughs> she's in Dunkin' Donuts right now. Okay. Well, well the one thing I'd say is um, uh, if uh, the concern is that if we... Um, broadcast where we are and we're concerned that someone's going to come plunder our planet, mm -hmm. guess what? Too late. We've already done it. Well, good for you because that's my response to this. I think it's just ridiculously yeah. off base to be worrying about what another civilization is going to do to us when we are, you know, on a course for destroying ourselves. So that's why the National Academy of Sciences, Marsha, is so important. Just really, um, we need to have guidance. Here's another question I wanted to ask you. This, you know, there's several issues that are at the top of my list that are very of great concern to me. Um, uh, a future person I'm going to be interviewing is Frank Shu, who's developing a new form of nuclear energy, and I'm all excited about that. He's, I'm going to give him a show also, but I wanted to know what the National Academy of Sciences does with my other big issue, and that is species extinction. Mm -hmm. It is very, very important that we do not wipe out, you know, species on the earth that are just going, uh, you know, every day there's yeah. more missing. It's just, I don't think it's, I don't think it's morally correct, and I don't, e I think, talk about, you know, the unknown unknown. Um, it's not good for us to be doing that um, to our biosphere. What is the National Academy of Sciences doing about this, if anything? So, um, we have had a number of reports on um, various aspects of this, on ocean uh, biodiversity and various threats to the ocean, um, coral reefs, um, sound in the sea, and the effect on cetaceans. Um, we've had um, plastics, uh, uh, acidity. Yeah, plastics. Oh my God! Yes, the exactly. list goes on. 
Um, <clears throat> we've had um, reports on um, various uh, uh, impacts um, on um, things like um, uh, effects on agriculture and agricultural runoff and uh, land use changes and um, all sorts of other things. Um, I think that the Academy has had fewer reports that have taken really a global look at this issue, mostly because our reports are, for the most part, commissioned by U.S. federal agencies, and there are not... Um, there, there really aren't any U.S. federal agencies that have the oversight for global biodiversity. All right, so let's take another query. This one comes from Brady Kearns, and he contacted us through Facebook. The question starts off weird. It gets better, I promise. <laughs> um, Brady says, As I am smart, well-off, and bored, my mind has been wandering. I am contemplating things like building my own fusion reactor, learning how to edit and print DNA from my computer, and other mad scientist expeditions. How exactly could your organization protect the world from people like me? <laughs> Are we just smart enough to be very dangerous? Please note, I'm not actually that smart. Okay. <laughs> um, good. I, you know, good. These things are really important. These kind of questions are really important. For example, I worry about drones. You do? Oh, I worry about, why is nobody worrying about drones? You can just build your own little drone. You could, yeah, you could like just go chop off somebody's head really easily with it or smash into their living room. I mean, I just, is anybody worrying about drones? But Marsha, so, you know, what is the National Academy doing? Okay, <clears throat> so the National Academy, um, to answer this question, has a limited purview, but I think important purview. Um, we don't actually go around and knock on people's doors and say, we've been monitoring <laughs> your Facebook account and we think you look like a dangerous person. So um, we're going to take away your 3D printer. <laughs> so we don't actually do that. Mm -hmm. But one thing we do do, which um, is relevant to this, is we try to anticipate potential uh, issues before they actually uh, enter the um, common parlance and issue guidelines that help other people understand what the uh, appropriate limits are on um, ethics and um, appropriate uh, social norms. So, for example, um, the Academy issued a report called Guidelines for Embryonic STEM Research. And no one asked us to do that report. We actually funded it ourselves, um, put together a committee, and wrote the guidelines for it um, before many people even realized that there could be problems with embryonic cell research that would um, violate people's 
morals, their ethics, and um, social norms. And we put those out to help keep scientists um, on um, the, the right side of society. And I would say that in some of those um, issues that, that the listener brought up, we would hope to anticipate those problems and uh, get out guidelines um, to help um, both law enforcement and others help understand what is appropriate. Well, we have all his details on record, so we can... <laughs> yeah, we know who he is. His goose is already him. cooked. But, but <laughs> yeah. that's, that's important. I'm glad you said that because um, I, think, I think there are a lot of issues that need... They're developing so quickly that guidelines are necessary. Let me ask uh, the next question, if I may, uh, Marcia. So what is it you're new at the, at the National Academy of Sciences? Your tenure goes on for six years renewable to 12, as I understand it. You could be in this for a long haul. You have, you're in a very high leverage position. You could be doing some, do some fantastic things for the country, for science. What, you know, as you look at why you took the job, what did you envision doing uh, that your predecessors had not done? If you're like me, that's what floats your boat, right? You want to do something no one's ever done before. What's it going to be from you for the National Academy of Sciences? Well, um, I have to say I have the equivalent of my bucket list mm-hmm. for the Academy. Um, the things that I would like to accomplish before I leave that I think um, are important things. And I won't say that my predecessors um, haven't wanted to do them or haven't been trying to do them, but maybe I'll just put extra emphasis on them. First of all, we talk about the National Academy of Sciences as being the nation's home for science. We have a big, beautiful building on the mall in Washington, D.C., but I doubt um, many Americans even think about the National Academy as their home for science, or that many Americans bother to walk into the National Academy or think of the National Academy as the place they should turn to for answers to a scientific question. And I really would like to change fundamentally the relationship that Americans have with science through the Academy so that if an American has a legitimate scientific question and they want an unbiased answer. They feel that they can turn to the academy and the academy has resources to answer their questions and they feel that they've gotten an honest answer. Maybe you could do like an alternate version of the Academy Awards where <laughs> yeah. everybody gets really dolled up and like whoever's the best scientist like wins a prize and you do tearful speeches. Really? That's a, that's and, a good suggestion. And you know, babe, what I love about that is that instead of it being <laughs> like the Nobel Awards, mm-hmm. which the Nobels are given out for, you know, latest advances, Maybe it's for people who do a really great job at reaching Americans with um, understanding of science. Yeah, but but um, 
So, so we should nominate give... Neil deGrasse Tyson. Oh, first... I bet he's been nominated Academy a lot. We have a, we have well, a... <laughs> he already got our public welfare medal. Oh, he yeah. did. Which is the highest award we give. Yes. And we are, of course, All, All Stars is a spinoff of uh, Neil's show. <laughs> so, um, but you, be a little, put a finer point on that. What, what kinds of things are you thinking of doing? Are you going to like dress up the vestibule of the National Academy and have an exhibit that people can see? Are you going to sponsor? So, so yes, we want to have it a much more um, friendly place for the public to come in where they can um, uh, get, right now we've had um, what's called the um, Koshland Science Museum, uh-huh. but rather than being at the um, our uh, Constitution Avenue um, office, which is right on the mall, it's been over at um, our Fifth Street um, facility. So we're thinking about what can we have on Constitution Avenue, which is um, public friendly which um, informs people about science, about things like climate change, about okay. the human genome. Okay, that's, that's great. I would, I would suggest you also do a TV show. Get a channel. Get a, a channel and do a TV show. Okay, Put an aquarium in there because you also know about that. <laughs> okay, right. Okay, so... <laughs> These we, are terrible ideas we're giving to Marcia. She's, she'll come up with her own, I'm sure, and they'll be great. So thank, thank yeah. you so much to all of our wonderful listeners. For those uh, those really provocative questions, unfortunately, we're out of time. So um, we're going to sign off here at Star Talk All Stars. Thank you, Maeve Higgins, Thank you so for much. co-hosting fun. tonight, and to my dear friend Marsha McNutt for sharing her wisdom and her experiences with us. You can catch us all on Twitter. I'm at Carolyn Porco. Maeve, what are you? I'm at Maeve Higgins. At Maeve Higgins and Marsha, you are at Marsha for Science, right? That's correct. Where at for Marcia- Number four, science. science. And check out more Star Talk on Twitter at Star Talk Radio. I'm Carolyn Porco. Until next time. This is Star Talk. 